welcome to Heroic Hearts Podcast, where we will explore the heroic journeys of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux to heal, inspire, and re-enchant our own hearts. This is Amy Chase, co-host of the Heroic Hearts Podcast. Thank you for joining us again. In this episode, Walter and I discuss the third stage of the Heroic Hearts journey and what happens to St. Joan of Arc after she receives her call to adventure. We also talk about Lent and how even the church's penitential season can provide opportunities to experience enchantment if we remain open to it. As always, Walter shares more fascinating insights into the real life of our heroine, Joan. So I really think you're going to enjoy it. Well, hello everyone and good to see you, Walter. Hello again, Amy. How are you? I'm great. And I would like to wish everybody a happy Lent. At the time we are recording this, it's the day after Ash Wednesday. So Walter, yeah. how was your Ash Wednesday? Well, it was, uh, it was, it was very good. And, and in fact, uh, when we get to our enchanting moment, it actually has to do, my enchanting moment has a little bit to do with that, but uh, it was, it was uh, very good. You know, Lent, Lent uh, is something that the, you know, the, the part, part of me sort of uh, dread, dreads it a little bit. <laughs> and then part of me rejoices in it. Right. Yeah. Because um, uh, I wish I could say I lo- that I look forward to penance with great uh, joy and anticipation, but I'm too, uh, too, um, normal and human for that. Oh, <laughs> so, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's really probably the, you know, one of the greatest seasons there is, but the, the very fact I'm saying that shows how important it is because it really makes me have to think about what I'm really doing. And am I really prepared to, con, you know, to think about conforming my will to the, to the will of Christ? And so that's a great, great challenge for us. Yes, it's an opportunity for us to be uh, even more intentional about our Christian lives and our Christian witness. Um, well, I don't know about you, but our church was packed. It was standing room only last night. People were coming in the whole time. It was amazing. I heard a statistic one time. Um, so, some some years ago, where a, a, a priest said that uh, the most uh, populous or the time when most people, they had some of the biggest crowds come to church was Ash Wednesday. And it's not even technically a holy day of obligation. Oh. So you, it's, not, oh. it's not literally a holy day of obligation. A lot of people don't know that, at least, you know. But it is there. a day of fasting, though. It is, well, it's a day of fasting and abstinence. Yes. And, uh, but... Um, and I think you're pretty lame if you don't go. <laughs> well, I, I have a theory about why it's become so popular, if you will, uh, I think in, in recent years. And that is that it's the one holiday or holy day, I should say, that our society has not managed to commercialize and trivialize. Yeah, I, I think it's a great that's a really great observation. And, you know, the, the I remember the priest uh, talking about it, saying that he's you know, he was sort of hypothesizing about why he thought that was. Why is it that we get so many people that come to Ash Wednesday? And he said it really had to do with, he said that there is a spiritual thirst for people. There's, I think it has a lot to do with even, you know, what we're, what we're doing here. There's a, there's a call deep inside everyone. There's a spiritual thirst inside everyone. There's, there's something about Ash Wednesday and, 
you know, coming to receive the ashes that seems to draw people and touch them, you know, hit a nerve in terms of that, that deep truth that we have inside of ourselves that, you know, we, we need this type of, um, you know, that this, we need this type of penance. We need this type of, of, of death to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, the message of Ash Wednesday is the exact opposite of I'm okay, you're okay. And, and we know that like, it's, it's kind of a paradox because you think, well, why do people want to hear that? But I think we want to hear it because we know it's true. <laughs> we well, that, know that, that we that, yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah. The I'm okay. You're okay. Mentality. And the other one that's out there, of course, is the, I am my own God mentality. Yes. And when you go up and you hear you are dust and unto dust, you shall return. That is not the, I am my own God mentality. That's, that is quite the opposite. And there, you know, I, I, I tend to, you know, agree or be open to what, you know, the priest was saying that we, we do. So we, we go out and we have, I'm okay. You're okay. Um, I should be happy all the time. I should never be sad. Um, I, I create my own reality. I am my own God. But at the end of the day, we know that that leads to meaninglessness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons, you know, we, we just had been talking about doing the podcast is, is that it's really about that search for meaning more than it is search for happiness. And, and there's something about receiving the ashes that touches us uh, in that, in that way. So it, it truly is one of the most beautiful days, um, you know, of that we year. have. Yeah. Of, of the liturgical calendar. Well, I think that's a, a great way for us to, um, to, to talk about our enchanting moments now, because uh, as you have mentioned before, enchantment is really that uh, openness to meaning, that, that ability to see meaning in the world outside of ourselves. Yeah, more than, more than just hap- happiness, um, that you know, happiness is more a derivative of finding meaning and, and meaning is not something that we find through con- continual comfort, search for comfort, running from anything that's hard, running from any challenge and always seeking the most comfortable place, which is basically a hedonistic approach. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's a very elusive, elusive thing, but enduring, uh, enduring happiness, or, or maybe we should say, you know, joy, because I, I don't I don't know, you know, when you look at what the Lord said in, in the Bible and maybe it's the translations, but I don't hear him talking a lot about happiness as much as joy. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and, and joy is something that endures. There are a lot of times I'm unhappy, but I'm but I'm still joyful, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's uh, emotionally, emotionally, I'm unhappy because something's happening. But there's a joy that comes through the meaning that I've been given in my life, particularly through this devotion to St. Joan of Arc and, and, and to her sister, St. Therese, it's been so important to me. So it, that, that's really where that, that, you know, that comes from. Well, please share with us the enchanting moment that you had this week. Well, gosh, it was just now when I, we were talking about Lent. That's, oh. <laughs> no, I, I, no, well, the, the enchanting moment that, that I was thinking about actually was, you know, I've talked, uh, you know, recently about, you know, tra- you know, traveling and seeing all its beautiful things in nature, which is always good. But, you know, uh, this enchanting moment happened, 
yesterday in the morning of, of Ash Wednesday, when, um, you know, we got up and, and, you know, Josie and I were doing our, our morning prayers together, which we do. And we're, we're starting uh, something new. So there's a, there's a prayer journal and that, um, that father Richard Heilman has, was promoting, uh, about, um, helping us get through Lent. And it's a prayer journal that, that guides us through. It's a beautiful journal that, you know, says, look, this is what a good Catholic does. We do these things. And here is a good uh, process or program for getting up and meditating in the morning and then following up through the day. And it's really something quite, quite neat. But the enchanting moment was thinking through yesterday how joyful I was that we were starting Lent. Now, I just said in the beginning that, oh, my, my natural man is like, oh, no, I like feast days. <laughs> I like feast days. Of course. What about, what's, this, what's this penance and fasting about? And of course, of course, I know, but like, I think probably uh, most of us, my natural person sometimes shrinks when it comes to penance. But I, I had this different feeling yesterday. And it's a feeling that I actually looked forward to the day that I look forward to this day of, of, of penance. So I had a very, it was a very positive move in the right direction spiritually. And, and I, and I got to think about why is it? So what was it about that was so enchanting about it? Well, what it was, was th there was something different. And I think this relates to everything we talk about in heroic hearts. You know, we talk about needing to set aside our biases, set aside the standard paradigms that we're stuck in all the time, the dome of oppression, this is the way you think. This is just the way you think. And that's all there is to it. And set those things aside and look at the world in a fresh way and in a new way. And when you take on a new, a new journal like that, and somebody and, and you say, look, I am willing. I trust the people who put this together. I'm willing to accept their guidance in going through. So I was willing to step outside and look at something that you know, I already was familiar with Ash, Ash Wednesday, but look at it through a different lens. And that different lens then seemed to open me up to uh, a new, a new experience. And so it may not, you know, may sound very subtle, but I thought about it. It was an enchanting moment because it brought me closer to the, the joy of entering into Lent. Um, that, that, counterbalance the natural person in me, the, you know, the, the concupiscence in, in, in me that, that shrinks from wanting to suffer, shrinks from wanting to do those things. And it opened me, it opened me up. So it was an enchanting moment and it, and it happened in a way that I think is everything we're talking about in heroic cards. And that's, you know, being willing to uh, take a fresh look to set aside maybe the way that I have been doing things, try something different. Mm -hmm. And then I have a, I have a, a fresh new experience. Wow. That was an enchanting moment. Well, that's very instructive for us. And I know yours is going to be awesome because you always outdo me when it comes to no. enchanting moments. Well, that's, it's certainly not the point. We're not trying to outdo each other. And of course, these enchanting moments happen all the time. Really, we're just trying to bring our attention to them and notice them at the time that they're occurring. <laughs> so my little moment uh, was early morning this week. We live at the um, 
we live in a kind of a cul-de-sac that is facing a bird sanctuary, which oh, wow. is wonderful because we have, well, we have the birds all the time uh, and they're, they're beautiful little songs. So it was, it was early morning dawn and the birds were just singing their chorus. And I took my cup of coffee out onto the balcony and listened to it. And uh, I thought, the thought occurred to me that if I had been an ancient person I might think that the birds sang the dawn into existence every morning, uh, you yeah. know, because there they are singing and dawn's rosy red fingers are appearing on the horizon. And you notice that every day, that's how it occurs. The birds sing and dawn appears. And I thought, well, why not? Why can't I? What a beautiful way. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me of, of you know, the, the idea that, you know, the, the world of, of the reality and truth of the world of consciousness versus uh-huh. the, the material world. And, you know, it's a beautiful way that you put that in the sense that the materialist will only say, well, that's ridiculous because we are scientists and we know how, of course. we know why the, the sun comes up. But in terms of, you know, the world of, of uh, consciousness where, you know, the, the God speaks to us, you know, there is that world where the birds bring seeing the morning into existence. Yeah. Well, and J.R.R. Tolkien gives us a beautiful myth, uh, which is very similar to that in his uh, his work, The Silmarillion. He, he's got a creation myth there where, where the god uh, Urdu, er, sorry, Eru, he creates spiritual creatures, which are like angels, and he invites them to sing a song. And that, that singing of the song brings the world or the universe into existence. And so I, I think well, I think I'm just in line with that. So that's... That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Well, that, that's incredible. Well, you know, that's, that's, I tell you, that's, that's why I go first because <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's absolutely wonderful. You know, and it reminds me too. Um, I remember watching one of Bishop Barron's um, shows on Catholicism some years ago. And he, he talked about something that intrigued me, but I think is really true. And I've seen it more true because what you're talking about is the phenomenological world. Mm. You're talking about the world, which is every bit as, true in the metaphysical sense as is the material world in, in the material sense. And he talked about the fact that we, we do participate in creation, um, you know, to that when, when God, in, you know, invites us, he invites us to participate in, in yes. creation. So we, we do bring into existence, um, you know, part of the world when we, when, when, we align ourselves with uh, uh, God through Christ, uh, and we we bring about the you know we yeah. we participate in this creation, and and also all of creation participates in the in the praise of God, as as the Psalms tell us. Yeah, the, even, the, even if it's not a conscious. Yeah, well, already there's so yeah that's part of getting out of the dome of imp- <laughs> uh, of oppression is what we're talking about is there's so much more than just the material world with its geological history, which is great, which is, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated. I watch all those shows about mm-hmm. uh, astrophysics and geology, but we're talking about equally important truths of, of phenomenology, of, of consciousness in our relationship with God. And that's where we start seeing doors open in that dome of, impre- of, yeah. of impression. Yeah. Definitely. Well, let's get into today's discussion. And as a reminder, as we work our way through 
through this, this discussion, through the novel and our discussion of the life of St. Joan of Arc, we're using it as an opportunity to invite our listeners and ourselves to reflect on how these experiences play out in our own lives. And so last week we talked about the call to adventure and your, your questions dealt with how, you know, have have you ever felt alone facing a significant life event and how did you react to that and how did you work through that? And my questions were similar in the sense of um, if, if you've ever faced a situation where you were tempted to run away, like we saw in, in the book last week where Joan of Arc faced down the madman and all of her friends ran away. Um, and then my other question was about describing an experience of beauty or wonder that drew you out of yourself. And I think we've been talking about that for sure this um, today. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you have any other thoughts on like facing those life events when you feel all alone? Well, first, first of all, I hope that, uh, you know, the audience will, as we've been saying, will participate uh, with us and uh, will think, think through. Um, and even, even to the degree that they feel inspired to journal a little bit about these, because I think that's kind of what, what we've done and what I've done, which has been meaningful because then it becomes, we do sort of start creating that phenomenological world with, with the Lord, uh, uh, when we do that. And yeah, so, you know, I, what I what I'd say, and this goes back to this this moment in devotion, St. Joan of Arc was, I, you know, when the when the financial crisis hit in in two thousand and eight, and sort of the world fell fell apart, and and that was a huge moment for me professionally. That was that was marked the exit of my corporate world, uh, where I you know that was my completely ordinary. I was a very devoted uh, Catholic. I was uh, had received a great grace of faith and under, uh, well, I say understanding faith and belief in the, in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and a great devotion to our lady, to the blessed Virgin Mary. So I'd been, you know, living that, uh, with obvious struggles and things like that, but I was completely immersed in just what we call the ordinary world. The, just the, the paradigms of the world were the only paradigms I knew. And I, so in other words, I was very corporate, <laughs> <laughs> and um, right, that's just the short way. But that's very <laughs> when the when the financial crisis hit in, in 08, you know, I, I kind of tumbled out of that like a lot of people did. And it was a moment where, uh, you know, not only did my career path take a different uh, direction, but my life took a different direction because it was it was at that moment. And we can talk about, you know, how the Lord times these things, uh, 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 how these things work together. But it was at that moment that I had this really experiential existential moment of uh, great, what's turned into an enduringly lifelong devotion to St. Joan of Arc, where there was a, just a, a moment in which I felt that whatever God was trying to tell me, it had to do with, with her <laughs> and that, that, I needed to, to, to follow her. And what that meant was that I developed a source of meaning that the value structure of my life, the hierarchy of values in my life changed. So in the corporate world, you, as you can imagine, the hierarchy of values was very jumbled up and, and in like success and uh, success, success and yeah. 
shareholder value and then all those kind of things. And you're trying to match that with your message of Christ and Catholicism. And yeah, that's so then there's just sort of disjointed and then you just sort of don't worry about it. And then you're in the dome of, of oppression. But the, 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 what happened was that it straightened out a hierarchy of values because what I could say was I suddenly had my highest value. And that was, I had to take this journey, like whatever else I did, I had to take this journey and all else became with, within, the, within the bounds of my um, vocation you know, of, of married life and father and, and all that within the bounds of that, because that is the most important thing, you know, your vocation and all that, but within the bounds of, of, of that, it became the, you know, the most important thing. So what happened, Amy was, uh, I found a source of meaning by establishing a legitimate and authentic hierarchy of values. Now, how do I know it was an authentic hierarchy of values? How do I know that this was a good thing? Because, the results in my life, just the um, escaping the dome of, of oppression of, you know, Joan of Arc said when she was, they asked her about the angels and, or, you know, how did she know they were angels? And, you know, one of the things she said was, well, they told me to be good and go to church. So that's pretty Very good advice. <laughs> really good. That's pretty good answer. And, yeah. and, you know, and I felt the same way because uh, what happened was I felt, I felt drawn to a closer relationship with Christ and Our Lady to, to be more fervently devoted to my Catholic life and, and even felt that I had received graces to help me do that. Uh, and, and so when I look back, I say, how do I know it was an authentic? Is because it brought meaning, but it brought meaning that uh, empowered my life in a positive way. You know, so in, in principle, I knew that these were the things I needed to do in my life, but I couldn't live them. Well, I think, I think also what you're saying is that you can look at the fruits of this experience and see that they are positive. And well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, what I had to do is I had to do a couple of things was I, and that's why I invite, you know, the audience to, you know, journal and think through these things, because one of the, one of the things that I was not able to tolerate in, in my own self was that I had this moment in which uh, St. Joan of Arc became just, in, I mean, just in, in front of me as this is an important moment in my life and I need to know who this is. I need, I need to follow this person and, and not just some, everybody has a lot of different ideas, but I need to follow St. Joan of Arc, not, not the Joan that other people have created, but the one that St. Therese had interpreted for me. So St. Therese, that's why we say that it was through the hermeneutic of St. Therese because it was her interpretation through her poetry that I said, this is the Joan of Arc that, that I, that I want to follow. And, and many of our listeners may be unaware that, that St. Therese had such a devotion to St. Joan of Arc oh, and she, wrote these poetries and these plays. Um, she, yeah. she, well, you know, one of the most famous pictures of St. Therese that everybody loves and you see all the time is her dressed with the dress yes. with, standing with the sword. I love and that. that was, <laughs> yeah. That, that was her playing the role of Joan of Arc in the play that she wrote herself for it's called pious recreation. So the, the Carmelites uh, in St. Therese's convent had moments of recreation and St. Therese wrote these plays as moments of pious recreation for uh, the nuns. And they would, they would play out the uh, play out the role. So people are very familiar with seeing St. Therese. Some of her most famous pictures 
are her dressed and posing and acting as St. Joan. Mm -hmm. And she also said that there was a Carmelite writer who mentioned that St. Therese had commented that the knowledge of Joan of Arc, she considered to be one of the greatest graces of her life. And remember that St. Joan, at the time St. Therese was living, had not yet been canonized. So St. Therese actually was writing, hoping somehow to help in the process of getting Joan uh, canonized, which I think brings well, up. In, <laughs> I mean, history uh, seems to suggest that it, it did unfold. Well, but see, now here's well, another important nice. thing to, here's another, I think, important thing to bring up to the audience. Okay. For those of us who feel we are small and insignificant and nothing we do is going to change anything, join the crowd. Uh, I think that's how most of us feel. The beauty in what we just talked about with St. Therese is <laughs> she's one of the greatest saints ever. She's a, one of the few doctors of the church. She certainly has got to be among the most popular in modern time. Definitely. She lived an uneventful life in a convent. Not many people knew her. So one, one, you might, Amy, you might wonder, like, how would St. Therese think that her writing could help bring about the canonization of St. Joan? Well, that would make sense if she were really famous and she knew the Pope and she was an influential person in circles. She was not, nobody even knew who she was. She was a little nun living in some convent in Normandy. And so the, the, the point we talked earlier about, uh, we participate with the Lord in the creation. Mm -hmm. And so Saint the, the work she did in the convent hidden had such powerful impact. We have with Christ, with in union with the sacraments, the Eucharist, we have tremendous creative uh, influence. <laughs> you know, in 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 the world, we don't have to be an eminent theologian or a a correspondent in Rome. Who's we can be just a small. When she died hardly anybody, you know, they should hardly anybody was at the funeral. And then finally, and I know we've got to move on, but uh, I get off, I get so excited when I talk about this, but I'm reading a book uh, written by, it was commissioned by her sister to be written. And one of the things that the, uh, the, the, the priest or the brother who wrote it said was her life was so ordinary and so uneventful. He was not really sure when he started what he was going to write about. Oh, wow. And then he, and then it just sort of, yeah. so my point to the, to the audience is you, you, you look at St. Therese and she wrote these beautiful plays about St. Joan of Arc. And I believe she really did have a preeminent role in helping mm -hmm. bring about the canonization of St. Joan. So we do have tremendous influence. We're, we're important in the eyes of God. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, that applies to every single person. So that's, that's a whole, that's a whole <laughs> well, thing. You can get, I can go on for the we'll, next five hours. Yeah. I just, maybe we'll explore uh, those writings in our next season. Yeah, uh, as I'm leave sure the mic on for five hours and I can just keep going on. Yeah. That. We, we will talk more about St. Therese, but for now we're going to bring our attention back to St. Joan of Arc and the story that we're following. And so uh, we've been, you know, we've been going kind of through the hero's journey, the traditional hero's journey uh, in talking about each of the stages. And so in that traditional hero's journey, when confronted with the call to adventure, the hero may first respond with hesitation, delayed tactics, or downright refusal. 
And I think we can understand that as being our, you know, our natural tendency to fear change. And I love, I love this little scene um, from The Hobbit when Bilbo Baggins replies to Gandalf's invitation and he says, <laughs> adventure? Now, I don't imagine anyone west of Bree would have much interest in adventures. <laughs> Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things makes you late for dinner. <laughs> so um, I think that, that kind of shows that you know, even when we're, we're suffering in our ordinary world, it might be kind of a quiet misery, but we know we're not happy. And then along comes uh, this invitation to a great adventure, you know, the thing that might be the answer to our, our problems. And then, and then we want, we resist it. We re refuse it. Well, so that... <laughs> such, such, such a great literary uh, piece of, of work that only great writers can do. Isn't it true, though, that as miserable as we are and we're called a great adventure, we just fall back on, well, it makes me late for dinner. How, or, you know, I can't, I, I, I'm so stuck in my ordinary. We, we immediately start thinking of the things that we'll have to give up, of the comforts that we'll lose, of the unfamiliar situations we'll have to face. And, well, um, and it's the, natural, but it's, it's, you know, it's fear. And that's that. And that's what happened to uh, St. That's what happened to St. John. So you talked about there's a lot of ways to interpret the hero's journey and you can be, sometimes I'm very literal, you know, if you say this is what the box is and then I, everything's got to be the way the box says, but really conceptually it can be, uh, you can think of a bigger, you know, because when we look at St. Joan, um, you, you know, and, and, you know, you read through different books and you look at the trial transcripts and everything and, and maybe someone in the audience has some information that I don't have, but um, having read through a lot of this, there doesn't seem to be any indication that she tried to run away from this, 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 that, that she's no, I refuse to, to, to follow, you know, the, the call kind of thing. And, and I don't recall anything in my readings other than the fact that she naturally like the blessed Virgin Mary was, um, we say afraid, afraid, or um, what would be your natural tendency when heaven, a little disturbed, you know, disturbed. <laughs> when heaven appears to you, where even even our our Lady, when when the, the Archangel Gabriel appeared, and and so there's a certain sort of you know disturbance, and 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 Saint Joan, like Our Lady, and I think you'd brought this up, uh, was sort of in the same. Uh, situation. What would you do if you walked out in your father's garden and St. Michael, the archangel was there in his glory, that would hardly be a moment, a dismissive moment. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and so there was the natural fear, but uh, I, I don't recall any, anywhere where she was anything but responsive to the graces. She was very responsive, but she was obviously afraid. There was confusion. It would appear that she needed a period of preparation. Right. A period of formation for, a, a for, a, for that's a great way to put it. Yeah. A, a formation. How do you, uh, how do you, how do you do this? Because there, there's the natural side of being say a 13 year old young peasant uh, girl. And are you really prepared for what you're, what's going to happen? So there were a period of years because she didn't, she didn't leave until she was 17. So there was a period of about, you know, four years or so of preparation of regular visits from. Well, in, in, um, in Twain's novel, there, there's a scene with Joan talking to her friend, the Sir de Comte, 
and and she's describing her initial reaction to St. Michael's call. And I think he asked her, like, weren't you afraid? And she said, for one little moment or two, the thought crushed me. For it is, as you say, I am only a child, a child and ignorant, ignorant of everything that pertains to war and not fitted for the rough life of camps and the companionship of soldiers. But those weak moments passed and they will not come again. I am enlisted. I will not turn back, God helping me, till the English grip is loosed from the throat of France. Yep. Yeah, and that I think that I think he captured that beautifully. When you look at all the other writings that go around, historical writings around Saint Saint Joan of Arc, I mean, people. She's. Um, I, I've heard it said or read said that she's the most documented person in medieval history and one of the most documented people in in the world because we and, and we have notarized transcripts of trial testimony that went on for months and months and then a retrial you know later a rehabilitation trial so there's so many notarized transcripts so there's a huge amount of documentation that we that we have on St. Joan and people have tried to poke holes and I think that that helps a lot in the sense that people have tried to poke holes and they just can't find any mm-hmm. uh, they 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 want to show that there was something delusional or there was something uh, and there just isn't and and I remember reading Regine Prenaud the great French historian she was she was one of those that she said I grew up and I was just bored to death like I went to all the little Joan of Arc parades and I was just bored and it was kind of like in the United States we get so bored of like celebrating Lincoln's birthday or something and uh, she she it was just one of the things the French do and whatever. And then she was asked to do a research project. And she said she went to the library and they said it was midnight and they were closing the library and she was still on a ladder at the top. She couldn't put down reading. She said, I could not stop reading about Joan of Arc. And then she ended up devoting her life to writing about St. Joan of Arc. So anyway, Regine Pernod is great. And she ended up being like the head of the French National Archive. So she's a true historian. But, you know, she made a funny comment one time. She said, people talk about, uh, was there something wrong with Joan? That she heard voices. She saw visions of angels. And she said, she said, if there was something wrong with Joan, she said that we should all be so ill. (laughs) (laughs) The world would would be a much better place if we all had whatever that, uh, that illness is. So she responded with great grace and, um, uh, and we also we also know that this was consistent because when she did uh, eventually have her first uh, quote unquote questioning, uh, jumping a little bit ahead of ourselves, but when she had her first questioning in Poitiers, which we'll we'll get to eventually, you know, one of the the uh, you know people, priests and people that were part of the inquisitors of that thing, s- said afterwards said that I I wished that I had a daughter that fine, mm. you know, that she was truly you know, very responsive. So there, there was Amy, this, this natural fear and natural need for formation, despite that responsiveness. But back to that original point about expanding the, the the concept of the uh, resistance to the call there, she did run into a resistance to the call. Yes. From from without. (laughs) Yeah. From without. I mean, you can look at it as, okay, so, you know, one of the points that, that I sort of made was how many times have you felt greatly inspired and you just knew that the Lord wanted you to do something and you just immediately ran into a brick wall? Oh, yeah. It's par for the course. Yeah, par for the course. And and you just, you know, we, we want to think that, oh, you know, God wants me to do this. 
and I'm, I have this great conviction. And so the, the, the world is going to step aside. God is on my side and the waters will part and I'm going to march to victory. And we run right into a brick wall and we turn and we run into another brick wall and we run into all sorts of obstacles. And I think we've all, like you say, par for the course. And Joan certainly ran into uh, the same thing. Well, what were some of those things that happened to her in, in the wake of her call? Well, uh, one of the, uh, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that, um, or the, probably the, the main thing was, you know, she did eventually reach the point where it was time to go. So she was 17 and she, she had to leave her, uh, parents and go to Vaucouleur to see, uh, Baudricourt, who was the captain. I remember Domremy was a little island of, of, of fidelity to Charles, mm-hmm. the, the French Dauphin, amidst enemy Burgundian, Anglo-Burgundian territory. And Vaucouleur was a little island of, of, of fidelity to Charles mm. uh, amidst all of that. So in those days, you put high walls up and you shoot arrows and you just keep everybody away. And so uh, Vaucouleur was another one of those. And so Baudricourt is important because he was, uh, he was uh, you know, in fidelity to Charles. And so was he, he could- Was he a govern- like a governor? Yeah, kind of like a governor- um, um, I guess you would, I guess you'd call kind him of a uh, minor political figure, right? He was a soldier and a minor yes. political figure. And he, he ran, uh, uh Vaucouleur and he was on Charles Dauphin's side. So, you know, he, he was another one of those islands. So J- uh, Joan then was instructed. She had to go to him, which made sense mm-hmm. in order to find support to go to the King or the uh, Dauphin. Um, which Dauphin in French just simply means the one who's going to be King or is, 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 is the, like the crown prince crown so prince the, yes crown prince so to speak and the reason I, I always talk about the dauphin is because joan joan never would refer to uh charles as king until he was king she always referred to him as dauphin and so uh anyway she she obviously had to go to to Vaucouleur. now okay so here's the thing your voices angels everything's great and they tell you to go to Vaucouleur and that Baudricourt will give you um help awesome I mean, to me, I just waltz right in and, and announce that I'm, I'm, I'm here. here from God. Right. I'm, I'm from God. I'm here. And you you probably received a message about me, but here, <laughs> here I am. And so, well, she went in and she was mocked. She was ridiculed. Baudricourt gave her an audience. But now you have to remember, this is medieval, you know, and here comes a little peasant girl in a red dress with her uncle. Her uncle uh, took her there and he was scared to death. Uh, because now he's going to look like a fool in front of, you know, uh, Baudricourt. And so he, he, um, he, he basically she's mocked and ridiculed and he refused a spectacle of her. Well, what he, what he said to her uncle was, he said, you should take, you should, you should slap her and you should take her home. Yeah. And he, he didn't want to hear any, he didn't want to hear any more about it. This ridiculous uh, notion. Well, she, she hung around. She hung around and she made an acquaintance with one of Baudricourt's uh, uh, key uh, captains or, you know, uh, soldiers um, and who would become truly one of her compatriots uh, going forward and would take them to um, uh, Jean de Metz, who would take her to see the, the king. So she made some acquaintances. Now, what she said when she was talking to de Metz, and she was waiting for another audience with Baudricourt. 
was this little quote I have here. And I, I love it because th this is an actual sort of exchange that she, she had. This is not a, not a Twainism, but, uh, you know, he said, you know, who sent, you know, who sent you? And she said, my Lord, and what Lord? And she said, the, the King of heaven. And, and the, you know, the, that was what she told the, the Mets when he asked her, he said, well, you know, who, who sent you? And she said, you know, my Lord. And he said, well, who's your Lord? Because, you know, the Lord in those days, that meant yeah. like, well, it's either, yeah. it's either our guy or what's, what castle did you come from? And she said, no, the King of heaven. And she was just very straightforward and very innocently. One of the things that was consistent about Joan was she just kept this innocent straightforwardness. Uh, people say, who sent you? The King of heaven sent me. So there was really no, there was no like, she reminds me of of Jesus's quote in um, about Nathaniel that there is no guile in her. Yeah, it, it, she was. It, it, it was just very simple and straightforward. Well, exactly. And you know, we'll we'll get to it down the road. But even when she was even when she was in battle later, you know, she would tell she had this almost innocent naivety, but yet this, but but yet you couldn't resist her. She'd go to the English and say, "Well, you, you leave and go home." leave it so the english are in position of all power and she walks up and she says go home and they're like well no and she said well if you don't go home well, then we're gonna you know we'll kill you <laughs> yeah so, she, had a, I mean, she, was, she had an iron will she was oh, oh, yeah. she was she was yeah, she, she, I don't want, she was not gonna yeah. back down she's like i don't want to i don't want to see you all killed but you know that's that's kind of, so she had this sort of innocent iron will, but sort of innocent. So anyway, back to Vaucouleur. So she runs into this huge problem. So she sent home uh, more or less, uh, as, as Mark Twain writes, you know, defeated, uh, though in her in her mind, it was just a matter of time. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think when you read this, when you read the history of Joan of Arc, there was I, I've never picked up anything that said that she was um, distraught, discouraged. She thought about maybe, maybe she doubted the call. She never doubted the call. It was just, okay, that didn't work. So I'm going to hang out and, you know, find when, when the Mets finally says he'll take her, uh, you know, to Shannon, she's, he said, when do you want to leave? And she, she's basically like, well, I want to leave yesterday. And if we can't do yesterday today, and if we can't do today tomorrow. So like, uh, so she, she never doubted. She never was questioning the call, but she ran into great resistance. Now, another thing that happened, you said, you know, what were some of the things? Well, her father caught wind of this and he didn't take very well at all. And he had had a dream that Joan was going to go off with military men. Now he thought in those days, if a woman went off with a group of military men, there's not a lot of good ways to interpret that. <laughs> no, uh, there's just, there's no good scenario in that. And he said, told her brothers said, if, if that happens, you take her to the river and drown her. Yeah. And, and if you don't, I will. Yeah. If you don't, I will. I mean, he would literally, you know, said, I won't allow that to happen. So her father was not very receptive mm -hmm. to, you know, so here she is faced. So what do you do when you're just a teenage, you know, peasant girl? You heaven has spoken to you. Can you imagine sort of that existential tension that had to have been there? I, 
I'm amazed at just the the grace and fortitude that a young child like that could have when, you know, she has been conversing not once or twice. She didn't have just one or two like emotional experiences at church. She's been talking virtually daily for four years with St. Michael, St. Margaret and St. Catherine and who knows what other host of angels and saints. Now that's a pretty powerful thing only to find out that the door is not open. The door is closed. Uh, you know, the, the, the person who was supposed to give you help said that she should just be slapped and sent home. Her uh, father says she should be drowned in the rain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All of, all of the people that she loves most are, are turning against her or, or re- ridiculing her, just not understanding the mission she's been given. Right. But the, the, and the, and the, and the, you know, the beautiful thing, I know you, you, it's hard not to kind of move a little forward and a little back, but you know, I think one of the most powerful things that ever happened was John DeMetz because there was one person of significance mm-hmm. who believed her at Bocouleur. And that was, you know, one of uh, Bogacor's yeah. uh, uh, key soldiers who, who basically talked to Joan. And he said, he's the one who said, who's your Lord? And she said, the King of heaven. And he said, you know, I will take you. She found a believer. She found someone who remained um, even at her trial of rehabilitation so many years later, he said that there was an indescribable love that he had, that all of them had for Joan of Arc. And it was not the kind of feeling that you would think that, that people, you know, men would have mm-hmm. their traveling. He said it was a holy, it was a holy and innocent love that we, no one would have ever thought of Joan in any way other than an innocence and purity. And yet she, we loved her with all of our, our hearts. So truly the way you would love a, a saint. Yeah. And so she found So she found it. Um, so she, her, she didn't, you know, she never doubted. She, she went back to, to Vaucouleur and, and she got the support of some key people. And so finally Baudricourt is like, well, and one of the things that convinced him was Orléans, Became while while this was going on, there was a fiasco at Orleans uh, in terms of you know military things turned for the worse for the for the French and uh, the literally the French were just hanging by a thread and they didn't know it at the time. She told him though, she said Orleans is in deep trouble and I've got to get there. So he found out by a messenger later, and, there, and this wasn't an age of internet and, and, and all that kind of thing. So he knew there was, a, there was no way she could have known what was going on. And yet when the messenger came a few days later, uh, he found out. So anyway, he, she, she received the support. So she ran into significant resistance. And then a final thing, uh, you know, I know there's, there's um, you know, you can probably you know, discuss, a, a, you know, 12 different things, but she also had the incident where she, and, and this is in chapter eight, I think of, of Mark Twain, where she was acute, uh, accused of having a breaking a marriage vow. Yes. And that, that, that really happened where she had to go and defend herself from a suitor. And in this case, in Mark Twain's case, it was the paladin. Um, but it was a suitor who claims that she had uh, agreed to marry him. And she said, that's not true. And she had to go defend herself. 
She chose to defend herself. She, she chose to defend herself. A lawyer, yeah. So her name was her name was impugned. Her her, her reputation was challenged. So so sit back and kind of and summing it up. Think think about it. You know, you heaven told you this. You're ready to go. The people are supposed to help you. Tell you you should be slapped and sent home. Your father's furious. You're now your name is being dragged through the dirt. And I think it might be easy if if we are not Joan of Arc, but we're encountering this these kinds of challenges and resistance to what we think is our call. It might be really easy to question the call then, even if yeah. we hadn't in the beginning. Now we might be saying, "Well, maybe I, you know, misinterpreted this, or maybe this isn't really what the Lord wants me to do." Well, and I I think too, sort of a, maybe a sort of a, a summary statement is I think that you know a par- part of it is a demonstration of our perseverance. And be, because there's always this huge question of, in, of interpreting um, what what the Lord wants us to do. And, and, it, and is all this resistance really a sign that I've misinterpreted what the Lord wants me to do? We all go through that, that confusion. Uh, so p- part of it was that sort of test of perseverance and faith. But I also think that it was part of the preparation, because if you've experienced the overcoming of those obstacles and you you break through, having fought, having stood up for that conviction makes you stronger, right? When you go forward. And so I think to some degree, it was a test in the biblical sense of a test, which isn't, all right, pass, fail. If you fell off to the gates of Hades with you, not that kind of thing, but the biblical test that said like Abraham is test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the test of faith that actually makes more faith, makes you stronger when you, when you go through it. The refiner's fire that burns away impurities. Right. So just remember that when we go through that, St. Joan's a great example that um, in her purity, she would have picked up if she wasn't doing the Lord's will, but she knew in her heart. So I think one of the first things was having a pure heart. Yeah. Without a pure heart, uh, you know, and that's why the sacraments, prayer, a life of prayer, sacraments, uh, of confession, without a pure heart, we can't see anything. So yeah. she had that pure heart and, 100%. but she did fight, she did fight through those. And so, yes. So the hero story applies to, to St. Joan, even though she's not a, you know, she's not sort of the typical character that, you know, yeah. which is why we're calling it the heroic hearts journey. Cause it's that right. hero's journey at a higher pitch. Exactly. Well, let's talk about our own journeys then, Walter. What what questions do you have for us as we wrap this up? Well, I have a question. Describe a time when you felt a call to something higher and were immediately confronted by obstacles, challenges, and scorn. So what was the outcome? And did you grow or shrink in the face of those obstacles? So what was you know, what, what's the, what's the, for the, uh, the outcome of that, uh, in terms of how we, we overcame that. And then the second one is describe a time you felt others were speaking poorly and unfairly about you. You were being treated unfairly. Uh, your name was being, uh, impugned. Uh, they were telling falses to hurt, hurt you and harm your name. So how did you, how did you defend yourself through virtue or anger or vice? And did your response help or hurt you in accepting your higher call? So 
Yeah, I'm, my questions are challenging. How how have we in the past worked through these obstacles, and, and did it work for us? <laughs> what was the out? Yeah. And and how might we think through with the life of Saint Joan? You know, a, a way to do that. Wow. Well, those are great questions, and uh, I I liked your question so much that I only came up with one because I didn't think I could really improve on that. <laughs> And so uh, my question is, how has doubt, fear, or resistance to change played out in your own life with regards to a higher calling? And then how, how have you learned to overcome these deterrences? Well, it's a, it's a great yeah. question. Yeah. Are you great still question. learning to overcome them as, as I'm sure many of us, including myself are? So. Well, and, and as we'll find, and I know we're wrapping up, but as we find, we'll find with St. Joan and following the hero's journey is that it's it's about engaging those obstacles that we 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 make the journey and find our meaning. It's not about avoiding the obstacles. It's about yeah. It's about going into battle and 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 facing those obstacles. Yep. And and half the battle is just making the decision to do just that. <laughs> and yes, and there's going to be some beautiful stories coming up about with the paladin and people like you know how she did that and how she brought. And in fact, for for a future one how her words to the paladin actually got me started on my journey with her. Well, I am really excited to get into that part of the story. Um, We've got one more episode of kind of talking about Joan's mentors before we get into the real action. But uh, I want to remind everybody, there's really no homework this week. If you've been reading along with us, we, we have read up to chapter eight of book one, which I believe finishes out book one. So this is going to be a catch up week. Go ahead. If, if you're um, still finishing book one, go ahead and take this week to do so. Next week, we will talk about Joan's mentors and our own mentors and the importance of that for the spiritual life and the hero's journey or the heroic heart's journey. And then after that, it's going to be the English and um, (laughs) battle joy. So battle and, and all kinds of things. So we have, yeah, there's, there's a, this is one of the greatest, truly one of the greatest stories. And I hope that people will say, engage with us and read, read with us, journal with us and journey with us. Yes. All all of the above. (laughs) And with that, that's a wrap for this week. So thank you everyone for listening with us and we will be back again with more. next. Thank you, Amy. (laughs) Thanks Walter. Bye. So we'll sign off for now, but stick around for Amy reading our closing poem. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover enchantment and adventure with St. Joan and St. Therese, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us at heroic-hearts.com. The Morning by W.S. Merwin Would I love it this way if it could last? Would I love it this way if it were the whole sky, the one heaven, or if I could believe that it belonged to me, a possession that was mine alone? Or if I imagined that it noticed me, recognized me, and may have come to see me out of all the mornings that I never knew, and all those that I have forgotten? Would I love it this way if I were somewhere else, or if I were younger for the first time, or if these very birds were not singing, 
or I could not hear them or see their trees. Would I love it this way if I were in pain? Red torment of body or grave void of grief? Would I love it this way if I knew that I would remember anything that is here now? Anything, anything.